Uh, For the rest of us, uh, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 6, and we'll be uh, starting in verse 17 today. Uh, And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provided for you, that's be on page about 860. Dave, Dave, turn me down. Thanks. Yeah, 860 of the Bibles that we provided for you. Uh, This morning, I want to think about the counterculture of the kingdom of Christ, all right? The counterculture of the kingdom of Christ. Ken Meyer says that culture is what we make of the world. And so when we talk about culture, we're thinking about those shared values, principles, perspectives, customs of a given people in a given place, now, I know that we have many native New Englanders in the room, but I also am, am, uh, have been around Redemption long enough to know we have many who are not native to New England in our church. So you can just kind of uh, bear with me as I reflect on my own personal experience of moving uh, from the, the southeast, North Carolina, before that grew up in Kentucky, to the, the northeast, right? These are, these are two different, distinct cultures. I'm sure you can identify with it, whether you're from you know, the Midwest, the West Coast, the, the, the Far East, as in the other side of the globe or, or the global South. We all come from different cultures, right? But one of the beautiful things about the church is that the church brings cultures together and creates this kind of one new culture in Christ. Uh, but for me, growing up in, in the South, you know, there, was, there were different forms of communication that coming to New England, uh, I had to kind of get used to. Now, some, some of those were kind of what I might call under-communication. So growing up, if you walked past someone, you know, and made eye contact, then, then you were kind of supposed to say hello, you know? Like, you might wave, all right? You might, you know, say, hey, how's it going? You might even give a little, you know, what's up, you know, shake their hand, whatever. Uh, but, but up here, you know, if you're walking down the sidewalk, you're just walking down the sidewalk, you know what I'm saying? It's like... There's not, a lot of, there's not a lot of communication going on there. Sometimes it's underplayed. Sometimes it's overplayed. For instance, when you're, when you're driving in traffic, right? And there is someone behind you that may be in kind of a hurry. I mean, there's, there's some cultural communication there, right? The horn, right? Like, it happens all the time. Parker's like, sometimes it's daddy even dishing it out now because I've assimilated to the culture. It's like, daddy, why'd you honk at them? I was like, well, I was just telling him it's time to go. You know, green light's been green for at least a second. You know, like, <laughs> let's get on with it. So, uh, so sometimes there's communication gaps. Other times it's just lifestyle. I mean, the pace of life. One thing that I love about Boston is that Boston is, is an intense, accelerated pace of life. Right? People are here just to get on about their business and to get things done and to, to work and work hard. Um, others may include something as simple as eating habits. Right? So, so in, in the South, you know, there's more kind of barbecue and fried food. Here, there is less of that and more of seafood and, and pizza. So if, you, if you're a pizza person, which I am, I mean, you can't like, drive down the block without seeing a pizza joint to you know, test it out. Um, one thing that I love about uh, Greater Boston, um, and we could just keep on going on down the list. We could go talking about cultural values, talking about what makes Boston Boston, and and the distinctives there. Uh, but what I want you to think about is this: even no matter what, where you came from, if you're from maybe uh, the global South or, or, or a culture that's very um, community-based and not privatized and individualistic like our American culture, we all tend to have different levels of culture shock when moving from one culture to the other. But because of our common humanity, there are oftentimes going to be similarities as well. Now, 
when we're talking about the kingdom of God, when we're talking about moving from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God, from, as the Bible says, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, as Paul says in Acts 26, from the power of Satan to the power of God, what we are talking about is not just a few cultural differences that need to kind of be adjusted to. We are talking about a complete reversal of values that are absolutely turned upside down. So, so what we're going to see here in Luke 6 is Jesus inviting those who would wish to follow him to this culture that he brings, which is absolutely countercultural to what they've known for all of their lives. And so Jesus is going to teach us that disciples of Christ are called to live as a distinct counterculture in the world. So before we begin in verse uh, 17 of Luke 6, I want us to back up to Luke 6, verse 12, and we'll read the first few verses here through 14. This is what Luke writes. It says, In in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named Apostles. Let's stop right there. So just, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we asked this, this pretty kind of hardcore question, are we dependent on ourselves or are we desperate for the Spirit, right? And we concluded that to be, to be the kind of church, to be the kind of you know, people of God that are really about this thing, the way that the Bible describes that we ought to be about this thing, then we want to be those that are not dependent on ourselves. We want to be those who are desperate for God. And we can just look no further than right here, verse 12 of Luke 6, to see a picture of desperation. So you can imagine someone's coming up to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you've got a pretty big mission ahead of yourself here. You know? You're going you're to die for, for, for the sins of the world, and, and you're going to seek to bring people back to God and reconcile them back to God. And, and oh, by the way, you know, you're, you're about to choose you know, 12 representatives out of your group of followers. They'll be known as apostles that will take your mission and take it to the world. What you teach them, they're going to go and teach others. And so how are you going to go about this? Like, what's your approach, Jesus? And Jesus just says, prayer all night. I'm going to go hard after God. I'm going to go hard after my Father, go hard after the will of God, and I'm going to seek Him, His wisdom. What a beautiful picture of desperation. And this was so important because these 12 apostles represent the new nation of Israel that Jesus is going to form. All right, so, so just as the, the, the nation of Israel had 12 tribes, Jesus chooses 12. I think the number is significant in that these are going to be leaders of this new people that he is forming as the gospel goes out and as people come to embrace Christ, this new people of God we, we know as the church, which, by the way, the church is quite simply a community of followers of Christ. Simply put, simply defined, that's what a church is. And so we're excited to start a church here in Medford. We launched services about a year and a half ago because we want to be a light for what God is about and what God is doing in the world and what Christ has come to do and to save us from so that we can gather other people who would say, you know what, yeah, I see that. 
And what, and what, what is a disciple? Here, here's what a disciple is. And we're going to see this is what the, the whole sermon's about. But a disciple is someone who understands that God is, that God reigns, that he is king over everything, and that we as people, as we see in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we as people choose to rebel, reject the rightful reign of God in our life, and instead of living under his kingdom, we then create little kingdoms for ourselves over which we are the rulers and those who reign in our own kingdom. And so what Jesus does is he teaches his disciples to say, you know what, I have come to restore order. I have come to say the kingdom is near, the kingdom is at hand, and if you want to live your life under my rule and reign again, then this is what it's going to look like. And this is what we have in Luke chapter 6. Now let's pick up in verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him, and he healed them all. Remember, we said Jesus has a ministry of word and a ministry of deeds. There's his ministry of deeds, and his ministry of deeds always works to support the ministry of the word, right? And so now we have verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, now, what we're going to see over the next two weeks, we're going to break down this sermon in two parts. And, and, and this is what uh, we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so what, what we see in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7, is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's his most famous sermon that he ever delivered. So if you want to know what the teaching of Jesus is about, then it would be really wise to get really familiar with this sermon. And scholars sometimes disagree over, are these two separate sermons or are they, they the same sermon? And one of the, the points of dispute is actually verse 17 where it says, you know, he came down with them and stood on a level place. And they say, well, this is a sermon on the plain and the other is a sermon on the mount. But I think we could, we could you know, at least say that isn't conclusive because even though he's coming down the mountain, this could be a plateau there in the mountain. So the content is so similar, it's likely that Luke and Matthew selected, this isn't an exhaustive transcript of Jesus' sermon to his disciples, but they have carefully selected the material and presented it in a particular way to address the, the, their respective audiences. So I would side with, with those who say this is the same sermon presented in just a little bit of a different way. And even as we go through Luke, we're going to find that, that other parts of the content of Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount pop up, the Lord's Prayer, Luke 11. And we'll see this in different ways as we move forward. So, so, so let's not forget that Jesus' ministry was one that was a ministry of the Word. So we saw that in Luke 4, right? Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then he says in verse 43, if you want to flip back, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Okay, so, so this is why Jesus came. He came to proclaim good news 
right? Which is the gospel. This is, not, this is good news of the kingdom of God. So Jesus here is going to, to give us the distinguishing marks of his community that make up this counterculture of the kingdom of Christ. And we're gonna see it in two primary ways as we take the first half of this sermon. Number one, the counterculture of Christ calls us to a, lo- a life of humble reliance. The counterculture of Christ calls us to a life of humble reliance. Again, Jesus is providing just a simple description, simple and profound description of what life as a true follower of his will look like. He's, he's saying, this is what life in my kingdom will look like. And again, it is a complete reversal of values. So this is, this is what he's after here as he's proclaiming this sermon to those who hear. And verse 20 says that, that part of the crowd were his disciples. It seems that Jesus is, is addressing primarily his disciples. As it says, he lifted his eyes up on his disciples. Now, at the same time, we also know from verse 17 that it wasn't just his disciples. It wasn't just the 12 apostles that had gathered to hear, but it was also the great multitudes, And the multitudes often came to hang out with Jesus, not to hear what he had to say, but benefit from what he had to give. Don't miss that. Because I know you're thinking, oh, well, shame on them, right? They just showed up for, you know, the healings. They just showed up to get their unclean spirits, you know, cast out. They just came to get their sickness cured. They didn't come to really identify with Jesus. But here's the problem. This is what we are prone to do ourselves. We want God for what God can give us. We think God is like this cosmic ATM. God, I'll come to you when I need a little something from you. I'll pray a prayer when I'm in a bind here. Not God, you rule, you reign, you are worthy of everything in all all praise of my life, and I will give my life to you. So Jesus is addressing his disciples, but this is a word for all who hear. No matter where you stand with Jesus, the encouragement would be to take heed and to hear and to listen what he has to say. And by the way, since we're in the church context, all right, Jesus was addressing a very religious people, okay? Israel was a very religious society. And so people were coming to Jesus and they're thinking, man, Jesus, we've heard all this before. You know, we know you're a prophet. We want to hear what you have to say, but we've heard this before. You know, we're trying to live a good moral kind of life here. And so we need to remember what Matthew says in Matthew 5, verse 20, where he shocks the hearers and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was shocking. This was shocking for the people to hear. Why? Because if anyone had it all together in terms of what appeared to be a devotion to God, it were the scribes and Pharisees. They crossed their, you know, religious T's and dotted their religious I's. They not only tied their money and tied their possessions, but they tied their little spices. Jesus chides them for this in Matthew 22, I believe, where he says, you, t- you tithe your mint, dill, and cumin, but you, re- you neglect the weightier matters of the law. 
And so what Jesus wants to tell us here in this sermon is that it's not enough just to kind of prescribe to some measure of religious conformity as if God is, you know, impressed by our little observances and outside external behavior. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, if you really want to come and identify with me, you need to have your heart revolutionized from the inside out. And then what's on the inside, because I've changed you by my grace, will then come out on the outside. So that is hopefully a bit of the context of the sermon and what Jesus is going to seek to accomplish here in his message. Now, how does he introduce his sermon? Well, he introduces his sermon with a series of statements on the blessed life. These are known as the Beatitudes, a Latin word for the word here, blessed. And the word blessed can be translated happy, all right? So put a smile on your face, all right? Blessed, blessed people are happy people, but, but don't smile too much, okay? Because, because it's, it's, it's not just, you know, I've, I've heard some preachers preach, you know, these are the be happy attitudes. So, you know, if you just kind of live these out, you'll be happy. And I just want to, you know, I'm not trying to pick on anyone who's kind of had an understanding or interpretation, but listen, it runs so much deeper than that. It's not simply about having a little bit of happiness in life. This is about an, an internal joy. We could also say eternal joy that, that, that runs deep because the blessing and the favor of God rest on people that have this type of character. So if you want to understand blessing, go back to the Old Testament and find how many times in the Psalms it talks about blessed is the man, blessed is the man. Look back at number six where we have the Aaronic blessing that, that, that they would speak to the people and they would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. Have you heard this? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So this is not simply a happy feeling that we, you know, want to kind of conjure up because we're trying to live these out. This is the divine favor of God. God making, God, God making his face shine upon us, giving us his blessing. And so these are words of encouragement and comfort to the disciples. These are, what Jesus is going to say is, look, if you belong to me, if you are blessed, then, then you are going to experience what this looks like in life in my kingdom. And of course here, there is an implicit invitation, right? To those who may not experience the blessing currently to say, look, if you want this blessing, then it is yours to be had because I extend it to all. So what does he then say first in verse 20? He says, blessed are you who are poor. That's exactly what you expected him to say, right? Blessed are the poor. I mean, is this, is this how we live our life? As Americans, is this kind of what we're after here? That's the American dream, right? Let's, let's, let's try to be poor. Let's, let's try to, you know, not, not work, you know, too hard and, and see if we can kind of strive for poverty here. It's not it, right? So, so, so listen, Jesus always in the Gospels, he always has a regard for the materially poor, 
those who do not have, for whatever reason, okay? They haven't been able to experience these material blessings in life. And so we want, to, we want to see that. We want to reflect Jesus in that way and have a regard for the poor, reach out to those who are poor and needy in the world. But again, going back to the Old Testament, the term is not so much an, given in an economic sense as it is a theological sense. This is why Matthew probably pulls out a, kind of a thought-for-thought thought translation of what Jesus said here instead of Luke is probably giving us a literal translation because Matthew says what? In his first beatitude, Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit. And this is what we see in the Old Testament. King David, who was not materially poor, by the way, he was the king of Israel, Three different times in the Psalter, in Psalm 40, in Psalm 86, in Psalm 109, says, I am poor and needy. This rich man says, I am poor. And this poverty of spirit is absolutely essential to understanding what it means to have and possess the kingdom of God in our souls. See, someone who is, who is spiritually poor says, God, I have nothing to offer you. I am spiritually bankrupt. My account has run dry. And they're saying, you know what? I don't have anything, but, but God, you have everything. And so I'm going to live my life in light of, 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 of you. You are my supply. You have everything I have. God, I don't have wisdom. You have wisdom. God, I'm not loving in my, myself, but God, you have selfless love. And we could just go on down the list. I love the hymn, Rock of Ages. It says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing, we bring nothing to the table except rebellion, except the fact that we are enemies against God. And so those who are poor in spirit have this sense of self-reliance. Here, here's a prayer, by the way, if you just kind of want a, a handle on this, a prayer to undercut self-reliance would be simply this, I am nothing, you are everything. I am nothing, you are everything. I am poor, you are rich. I am not wise, you are wise. I am not merciful, you are merciful. And give me what you have. So, Daryl Bach, New Testament scholar, preeminent Lucan scholar, by most accounts, would say this. This beatitude sets the stage for the three that follow. Okay, so we're gonna keep coming back to the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit, the poor. He goes on then to say, blessed are the poor who are poor, for yours is the kingdom, okay? So the kingdom belongs to people like this, the inheritance of God, the experience of, of the rule and reign of God belong to people who are poor. So let me ask you, are you poor this morning? I mean, have you come to God? You will ne- let, me, let me just say this. You will never come to Christ. You will never experience salvation. You will never no abundant life, eternal life, unless you see I am poor. But it's not just for non-Christians, okay? So if you're not yet a believer, if you're not sure of your salvation, if you don't know Christ in a saving way, then you need to see that you are poor. But the same is true for all of us who are in Christ. 
every single day. We are who we are, Paul says, because of the grace of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Number two, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Again, this is, this is not just those who hunger physically, though we want to meet physical needs. All right, that's why this month as a church, we're collecting resources to bless needy families in Medford who don't have a very high income, if an income at all, so that we can give them a Thanksgiving dinner. Now again, hey, maybe that's not much, but it's a step. It's a way to extend mercy to the hungry. But it's not just that. God cares about our physical needs, but he's ultimately concerned with our spiritual needs. And so again, Matthew would say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So isn't this a good follow-up to what we saw last week at the beginning of, of Luke 6, I believe, or at the end, it was actually the end of Luke 5, where, where this question of, about fasting comes to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? Say, well, I'm with them right now, but I'm going to depart, and then they're going to fast. And this is kind of like one of those parts that was like we're not too pumped up about in the kingdom of God, you know? Like we all love to eat. We're Americans after all, right? We just talked about all the pizza joints around here. So it's like, you know, skip a meal for, for, for God is... I mean, is that on anybody's radar here? Skip a few meals for God. Skip multiple meals on multiple days for God. I mean, it's not that God's calling us to this ascetic life where we deny everything in our life, but fasting is given to us as a means of grace that we might feast on God. So we skip a meal occasionally so that we can say, God, I don't need that. I need you more than I need food, and I'm going to live off what you give me I'm just going to pursue you in desperation. Blessed are those who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. And this is what scholars call a divine passive. It's pretty cool. It's, it's it, the, 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 uh, the, the subject of the provider that implied here is God. God is the one who satisfies us. So here, here's a great promise. If you're hungry for God, God's not hiding from you. God will satisfy you if you hunger and thirst for him. Number three, blessed are those who weep, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. I mean, does, does anyone go through difficulty in this life? Perhaps some of you are going through a real difficult time now. You'd say, man, this is like, this is it for me. This is kind of a season where I'm, I'm struggling. It's a trial. And, and Jesus said, listen, Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus understands we do not have a God in Christianity that is detached from the cons our concerns and, and our struggles. In fact, we have a God who came down. God the Son took on our flesh so that he could identify with all of our struggles, all of our temptations, all of our suffering. Hello, the cross. So if you weep now, know that if you live under the rule and reign of God, if you are submitted to him and part of his kingdom family, then you will perhaps laugh in this life, but you will most certainly laugh in the age to come. God brings joy. And, and we can't even, let me just see, even in our deepest sorrows here, you lose a loved one. Your, your life is in shambles, maybe material, whatever. 
God can bring you through that and even bring you to the place of laughter in him because he is that good. And let me just, let me just pause here and say, Jesus is not teaching that poverty and hunger and you know, weeping is a blessing in and of itself. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, we can't make sense of verse Verses 18 and 19, those who came to hear him to be healed of their diseases were troubled with unclean spirits. They, all, they, were, they were healed. So, so I mean, God, is, God, God is, is after helping meet these physical needs. He's not, he's not saying go pursue this, go pursue, we're about to see persecution, martyrdom for me. But he's saying, if I call you to this, I'm going to give you the resources, not only to be sustained through these times, but to know that my kingdom is now and not yet, and what you will experience in my kingdom far surpasses anything that you would experience now. 2 Corinthians 4, this slight and momentary affliction is achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far exceeds them all. Man, that's good stuff. Thank you, Paul. Now, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Once again, not how we typically view it. So Jesus, you're saying it's a blessing when we're, when we're hated, when we're spurned, when we're excluded, when we're reviled, for you. And Jesus is saying, yes, that's a blessing. It's a blessing. And he even turns it up a notch in verse 23, and he says, Not, don't just get yourself blessed here, but rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. This is what the the, the apostles, these ones that he just chose here, a few years later in Acts chapter 5, they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be beat. They're going to be told, hey, you need to be quiet. Don't speak anymore in the name of Christ. And you know what they do? They rejoice because they're worthy to to suffer for the name of Christ. And why would they do that? Because because they were so completely identified with Jesus that, that, that nothing else mattered in life in comparison to, to knowing him, to serving him, to loving him, to living for him. And so be encouraged if, if you, you know, experience some level of rejection because of your commitment to Christ, some level of persecution because of your commitment to Christ. If God calls you to take the gospel overseas and, and you're even persecuted, maybe even unto death, hey, this is, this is reason to rejoice in light of eternity. And do you see the reversal of values? Do you see how Jesus is turning the values of our world's way of thinking and flipping them upside down? We are told to be strong, to be rich, to pursue power, to look down on the weak, to do whatever we need to do to get ahead in life, to be a self-made person. We don't need anyone's help here. Play it safe. Pursue comfort. And you say, you're not looking at my life very closely. If you want to follow me, you'll take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me daily. So listen, if, if your perspective in life is to, to get rich, to be self-sufficient, to, 
to, you know, have the most comfortable life that you possibly can, your best life now kind of thing. You might want to listen to verses 24 through 26 because Jesus then says, but woe, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And so basically to sum this up, what Jesus is saying is like, like if you're pursuing these things now, you better enjoy them now because that's all you are going to get. If you enjoy the praise of man, you better enjoy it now because you will never receive praise that comes from God, the commendation that comes from God. If you're, if you're hungry now and, and full and self-sufficient and rich, you better enjoy it now because in the age to come, you are going to be bankrupt. The counterculture of Christ calls us to a life of humble reliance, poverty of spirit. God, I have nothing. You have everything. I want to live my life in desperate dependence on you. Now, number two, we're going to see that the counterculture of Christ calls us to a life of radical love. Look at verse 27. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Remember, this comes on the heels of verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. So in contradistinction to to, to people hating you, here's here's what you do. You love them and you do good to them. Again, conventional wisdom says, hey, love your friends, but don't worry about your enemies. In fact, why don't you, you know, kind of retaliate, pay back your enemies what they have paid to you. But Jesus says we are to love them. And then, you know, what, what really bothers me about Jesus is he's going to say, like, you know, keep them at arm's length, you know, your enemies. But he, he says not only just love them, because I think somewhere in our heart we can say, oh, yeah, we're supposed to love our enemies, but if they kind of stay, you know, 20 miles away, we don't have to really, you know, see them or do anything about that, that we can kind of get along with that and deceive ourselves like we really love them. You know what I'm saying? But when you pass them on the sidewalk and when you, when you have to interact with them on a daily basis and, you know, Jesus is saying, no, 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 just love them, do good to them. He, he confronts our will. You need to do something about this. If you really love them, you'll put this love into action and you're gonna, you're gonna show them that you love them. And so he says, do good to them, bless them, pray for them. And he gives four illustrations of what that looks like. First in verse 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. So let me just say, Jesus is not commanding absolute passivity or that his disciples should be a doormat for their enemies to walk all over. But he's teaching his disciples that love does not always make use of its personal rights and is willing to forgive even if it means experiencing further insult and further abuse. When we're insulted, we want revenge. He says we should love. 
Illustration number two, if, if someone takes your cloak, okay, this wasn't a nice gesture, okay, they, they stole it from you, they've taken your cloak, a cloak was like a robe-like outer, outer garment, you can think coat. If they take your coat, do not withhold your tunic also, that would have been the garment close to the skin. So basically, if you're hanging, it's like the temperatures are dropping here, everyone's kind of well aware of that probably over the past week. And, and you're hanging out, chilling out at the bus stop, both, you know, figuratively and literally chilling out. Um, and you see your enemy, and your enemy comes up, and he's just shivering because he doesn't have a coat. He, like, left it at home, or someone stole it from him. Vengeance is the Lord's. Um, you, you didn't get that. Um, so what you do is you, you not only give him your coat, but you give him your shirt and gloves, too. This is radical love. This is countercultural love that Jesus calls us to. And, and then illustrations three and four are found in verse 30. He says, give to everyone who begs from you. This happens quite a bit in Boston. And do not, and from everyone who takes your goods, do not demand them back. All right, so again, this is a general principle. This is not saying every time, you know, someone who is maybe homeless in, in greater Boston comes up to you and says, hey, I need help. I mean, God gives us wisdom and discernment, and sometimes we can help them in other ways, not necessarily give them a $20 bill, but maybe say, like, hey, you know what? But, but what Jesus is saying, our inclination, even if that person were our enemies, is like, how can I help you? How can I wisely help you? Can I, can I go buy you? Are you hungry? Can I go buy you a sandwich? Those type of things. So, so if someone asks you, our inclination is to give, to serve, to love, and to not withhold, even if someone takes something, not to demand it back from them. And then verse 31, a quite famous verse, the golden rule, it says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, this is a, a common kind of dictum across the board. You can, you can look at different religions, you can look at philosophers, and you're going to see this time and time again. Let me give you an example. Look at this interfaith poster. This is a, a poster that, that has, you know, Christianity and Judaism and Islam and Buddhism. And, and so you have different quotes here from all of these different religions. Hinduism and, and Confucius has said, you know, something similar. And, and so there is, there is a golden rule kind of across the religious spectrum. And, and, and so someone would say, oh, see, this is kind of why you just, man, all religions are the same. And, you know, none of them probably are true, but, you know, they all kind of come together, and so how could we ever know if one was right from the other since they are kind of saying the same thing? So let me just kind of theologically explain this. Number one, we have in our understanding of God and how benevolent and gracious he is, as we're about to see later in a few verses, that God gives his common grace to all. So he says that, you know, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. God provides for the good and the bad. He, his common grace restrains our evil in such a way that we are not as bad as we possibly could be. And so it's, it's not a stretch to, to think that, yeah, because of common grace, all of these different world religions could come up with a principle like, hey, treat, treat someone like you want to be treated. 
But all golden rules are not created equal. Why? Because this is, a, this is basically a summary of love your neighbor as yourself. And, and, and in Christianity, that love of neighbor is built on a specific love for God, the one true God who made us to live under his reign and rule. So that now in, in Christianity, we have something that's, that's really and at one level altogether different than, than what these different religions are espousing and, and actually gives us resources to live it out in a way that is, that is altogether different. And so that is one way to understand the golden rule, but thankfully other religions are trying to live this out in some way, shape, or form, right? That we are to love people and to treat them as we would want to be treated. Now, in verses 32 through 34, Jesus teaches us to do good for the virtue of love, not because we expect something in return. Check them out with me. He says this, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love them who love themselves. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So basically, Jesus is, is, is here ripping the self-centered tendency of our good works out from under our feet. You know, it's not just, hey, I'm going to do something nice for you so that you'll do something nice for me in return, right? I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'll give you a ride if you'll share your class notes with me. I'll wash the dishes if you, you know, return a favor to me a little. My wife's sitting on the front row. Uh, you know, do something for me later on. This is just how we operate, but Jesus is saying, don't operate like that. You love for the sake of loving, expecting nothing in return. This isn't self-centered love. This is radical, selfless love. In verse 35, he just sums it up. He says, he says but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. So, so isn't this just kind of the point where it's like, Come on, like Jesus, could you just kind of calm down just a little bit on your expectations for what life in the kingdom looks like? But the problem with Jesus is that he not only turns it up with what he says, but he turns it up with how he lives. The night before he was betrayed, He's hanging out with his disciples, all 12 of them. And one was going to give him the kiss of death. He was going to, Judas was going to betray him to the officials, the means by which he would come to be crucified. And Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and he, he takes up this, this bucket of water and he starts washing the disciples' feet. All 12 of their feet. And he even says to all of them, come and dine with me. Come and eat. Come and participate. Have intimacy with me. Even his enemy. And this is supremely what he has done for us in the cross. He died and spilled his blood, gave his life, not for his friends, but for his enemies, us, 
so that through him, through his sacrifice, we might be the ones that now get to sit at the table and feast. So Jesus doesn't just call us to radical love. He shows us what radical love is with his life. And this, by the way, is the motivation for our own radical love. You say, man, like Jesus, you've given us all these expectations and this is what life looks like in your kingdom. So what's the motivation? Well, verse 35, he says, if you do these things, your reward will be great in heaven. So there is a reward. Bank on it, treasure in heaven. And you will be called, even more significantly, our greatest reward, you will be called sons of the most high. So we have reward, we have relationship with God that was once severed and broken. And then this is the motivation. He grounds it because this is how you will show that, that, that you relate to God and you belong to God and you can live this kind of life because God, the Most High, He is kind to the ungrateful and He is kind to the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So once again, Christianity turns love on its head and it says, look, not just love, love those who are like you, love those who are your friends, but love your enemies. And, and this is exactly what God has done for us in the gospel, in Christ. So if you're ever struggling with that, that coworker, with that family member, with that neighbor, you're just reminded that we love because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. You're reminded, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that the, the love of Christ compels us. You're reminded what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 5, that the aim of our charge, why we do what we do, everything that we do, whenever we do it, is love. Because God has loved us in the most astounding and exceptional ways in Christ. So let me ask you, do you know the love and mercy of God? Do you know it? Have you, have you experienced Have you experienced salvation in Christ? Are you feeding on the love and the mercy of Christ every single day? Because you, you ask the question, who could love their enemies? Who could smile in the face of persecution? Who could turn the other cheek? Who could be poor in spirit? And it's only those who've experienced the radical, unbelievable mercy, grace, and love of God. So if you're like me, my problem is so oftentimes I am not poor. So oftentimes I am, I am not prone to rely on God. I'm prone to rely on myself. And so we just need to pray, God, make us poor in spirit. God, I am nothing. You are everything. Guide my life. Help me to live under your rule and reign and what life ought to look like in the kingdom. God, give me the grace to do so. So let's pray about that now. Father, would you, would you help us to see our poverty? God, forgive us when 
we fail to see our poverty. Father, I pray that you would help those who today may be an enemy of you because they've never been reconciled to Christ and ex- accepted his gift of grace. God, I pray that you would help them see their poverty and that this poverty of spirit would in turn push us to love and depend on you, that it would change everything about us from the inside out. So Father, we need your help. We need your grace. We want to be a community that is completely countercultural. Not because we're better than anyone, but because you are so good and you have changed us and that same change is offered to the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.